Thanks to our sponsor, Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local D.C. area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who have more questions than answers, like us at DC by Foot. We're really excited to partner with them next month to learn all about personal liability as a tour guide in Washington, DC. Visit their website at malloy-law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. tour guide tell all family uh welcome back how are we all today uh we are here back in your ear holes where your friendly neighborhood not so neighborhood uh dc area tour guides here with you for some scandal some political intrigue some dc connections some very exciting stuff we are your source for all things exciting in american history and a little bit in world history although not so much today um as always though i am rebecca i'm becca and together we are the rebecca's (laughs) that was a very leisurely summer version it's very summer we're melting a little bit here in D.C., as I think everybody in the country is at the moment. So as we're recording this, the mercury is rising. And so we've decided to do a spicy tale for y'all, a little bit of summer spice to just make it even better. We would like to thank, first and foremost, as always, our patrons, the wind beneath our wings. You are always the best. We make sure you're getting your patron bonuses. We should have patron episodes once a month for everybody. Thank you to all of our listeners. We have met so many listeners on our tours. This has been so great. So we love seeing you come on our tours. We are giving many summer tours. It is very hot, but we know all the shady spots and all the literally and literally and figuratively (laughs) we really do um we have we're back for late summer and fall so you we're we're here for you now we're gonna have some really exciting and fun stuff coming up in the late summer fall ish if you have suggestions or something you'd like to specifically hear about let us know and uh yeah without further ado becca what are we gonna talk about today We are going to do a topic that we have had on the list of potential topics from the time we launched this pod more than three years ago, which is crazy. And uh, I'm really excited. We are going to talk about the Alexander Hamilton Aaron Burr duel. And I know some of you are thinking, does this ground really need to be trod? We've all seen the musical. We all listen to the soundtrack constantly. Uh, I will say I re-listened to the original Broadway cast recording this very day to get myself in the mood. And it holds up. It's still full of bangers. Still great. But what I think we're going to do here is maybe skip over a lot of the well-covered stuff in the musical, give you a little more context and background, and really dig into what happens on that day, what we know and what we don't know. Um, but I think this is kind of the perfect summer episode. Like you said, it's a spicy tale. It is hot. Um, tempers rise as the mercury rise. The duel takes place in the heat of the summer, 1804. So it's kind of the perfect summer tale. So this is what we are going to talk about. And I will say, I used to love doing Hamilton Burr on my tours. I used to do it on my White House at Night Secrets and Scandals. And it used to be so fun because no one really knew that much about it. And then the musical came out and everybody knew about it. So it kind of fell off my tour radar. I don't know if other, I know we have guides who listen to the podcast. I don't know if other guides felt that way, that for a little while, everybody knew so much about Hamilton that it felt like not new information. I talked about the Mariah Reynolds scandal mm-hmm. for a while, which we're not, we're going to touch on, but that's a whole separate podcast. It's a whole, that's a whole, a whole separate podcast. Um, Alexander Hamilton, y'all, he's a whole thing. So he's like 15 podcasts. He's great. 
we're just gonna do the duel but mariah reynolds is there that's a whole thing we're also like we should also at least mention that hamilton was actually like legit genius like he's a really important guy so we'll kind of get into that but i did just talk about mariah reynolds but not as much the duel i i don't talk about the duel on my tours as much and now everybody's seen slash heard the musical and so like lin-manuel miranda is infinitely more talented than i am so i'll just let him do that <laughs> no, no, nothing but respect for lmm so of course we're going to focus on the duel but just in case you are not a theater nerd in case you thought hamilton was overrated or never got your tickets that's all legitimate and fine alexander hamilton i think a lot of us know his backstory but the basic beats he's an immigrant he's a soldier in the american revolution he becomes a protege of george washington mm -hmm. if you go to uh, mount vernon you're going to get a little bit of hamilton's kind of relationship with george washington hamilton's a lawyer he's a delegate to the Constitutional Convention. Uh, you mentioned he's a genius. A lot of that comes through in his plans for the government. He is author of the Federalist Papers. He's one of the driving forces and pushing for the ratification of the Constitution. And he gets awarded through all this hard work and dedication to the founding of our country, the position of first secretary of the treasury. So this is a man with a very impressive resume, very prestigious positions. And I think that's important to keep in mind about both players in this duel is we are talking about some of the most respected credentialed men in America at the time. Hamilton is a deeply, deeply ambitious man. He has exceptionally strong opinions about what this new country should be, what form of government we should have. And all of that's really being tested after we win the American Revolution, right? Trying to get a constitution, trying to get this new government going. He's very loyal to Washington and very loyal to this idea of a strong federal government. Um, so he's he's got this like pathway to power, but... He's got some loyalty to his family uh, that he's going to have to deal with. Uh, his wife, Eliza, um, is going to suffer a pretty debilitating miscarriage. This is going to be one of the reasons he resigns from his cabinet position. And then, as you already alluded to, his wandering eye um, and the situation with Mariah Reynolds is going to be the other thing that is going to make it hard for Hamilton to sort of rise beyond Secretary of the Treasury. And I should mention, Hamilton is right there at the birth of what becomes our sort of partisan political cycle. George Washington, you know, for all of his ambitions for this country, really thought that we could just maybe not be so political. That is so not realistic of George Washington to think that we would eschew partisan politics. Hamilton does not, of all the things he shares with Washington, he does not share this belief of being above party politics. And he's right there as we're becoming a two-party country. Hamilton to me is deeply fascinating. I read once that the American Revolution produces two authentic geniuses and Hamilton is really one of them. Um, he really envisions our like entire modern financial system in a way that no one else really does. He rises from literally nothing. And that's, I think, one of the big nuggets about Hamilton that's important. And this will contrast with Burr in a minute. Hamilton, he's an immigrant. He's uh, illegitimate. There's questions about his paternity. He comes from literally nothing. Whereas George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Aaron Burr, as we'll get into, these are all propertyed, moneyed, elite men. James Madison, even John Adams has a pretty decent pedigree. Like he doesn't, he's not so hyper wealthy, but like Hamilton comes from nothing. So he has tied his fortune and his sense of self-worth and his like almost his well-being into this country that he's created. And so an attack on the country is for him very much like personal. This is real. And it, it whether it should be or not is a different like that's a different kettle of fish. But he's really wrapped up in a lot of this in a, in a fundamental way. We've talked before about how George Washington has surrogate son slash bros. <laughs> the father, the father issues that abound surrounding George Washington. Listen, somebody needs to do like psychological profile there. Anyway, he's got like, we've done Tobias Lear, who's fascinating. We have not done Lafayette, although we should. There's a few others, but like Hamilton is one of like George Washington's like pals, like they're buds. And there's a significant age difference too. So it's not like they're equals, right? But he respects Washington and Washington respects him back. There's a very strong bond there that is 
tested, I think, numerous times because they're very different in temperament. <laughs> to like, say the least. To say the least. Washington's like cool. He's chill. He's Washington. He's like above it all. All things in moderation, rules of civility. Yes. Hamilton's like hot blooded, man. He's like in it. And I don't mean that just in the like politics way either. Like we've all heard about the Mariah Reynolds of it all. Like it's it's a thing. It's a whole mood. Yeah, they're so different. And yet I think Hamilton reveres in many ways, Washington, so many of the ideas Hamilton had for this government to rested on the shoulders of someone like Washington at the head of it. And one of the things that will, I think, infuriate and frustrate Hamilton when Washington is no longer president is that almost no one else can live up to George Washington in his mind. And this is going to be part of why Hamilton cannot help himself from constantly criticizing and pushing and pushing because he holds Washington in such high regard. As we're sort of getting towards the early 1800s, as we get towards the period of the duel, I think we should mention that even though Hamilton deals with the scandal of the Reynolds pamphlet and the Mariah Reynolds affair, I will just say, they don't mention this in the musical, but when he writes that pamphlet in 1797, it's 100 pages long. Two brings receipts, man. Oof. That's a Look, lot. Look, that's a lot. And I'm, at some point, man, it, you're admitting to this this affair and you're you're laying out the details of this extortion scheme does it really take a hundred pages at some point is it just insult to injury like how much can you put out of your personal business it does it seems like a lot of a lot um and <laughs> but that's who he is right that is who he is fundamentally as a person big he's a big personality and it just is so the mariah reynolds of it we'll do that at some point we'll like do a deep dive i feel like later into Mariah Reynolds and all the Reynoldses. And it's a long, like the man does his homework and puts his receipts together. And this is like our first big political sex scandal. And then followed quickly by Thomas Jefferson and his sex scandal. But you know, this is like our first big one. Like Washington doesn't have sex scandals because he's Washington. And like, no one wants to think of him having sex period. And so then we get like, Hamilton's like all out there and like, hey, let's do it. And so this is like, we're a young country and we don't think of these things that as mattering now because it's been 200 years and the ideas of the have changed and we fight over different things now. But like they're establishing a new country. Every single thing they do, and they're very aware of this, is creating something that's brand new in the world. And how are we going to do this? What's the effect that this is going to have on our on our posterity, on how we're viewed. And so like a sex scandal is a sex scandal, but it's also like, this is his entire political reputation, his future, his country, his everything he's worked for. So there's a lot going on here. It's not just the sex scandal. Yeah, he would rather admit his biggest moral mm -hmm. failing, the biggest mistake that he has made in his life. He'd rather admit that he was built out of $1,300 in this extortion scandal, which is like $40,000 today, rather than people believe he may have used his position to personally mm -hmm. benefit. And that's an important understanding to his morality and his thoughts, as you said, about how tied his reputation is to the reputation of the country and to the federal government that, you know, this attack, this besmirching will not stand. He would rather lay out all of his other flaws than be thought of sort of taking advantage of this and, position. Um, and it's it's a lot. I mean, not everybody I think has that. No, and just. this isn't just his reputation either. This is his wife and his kids yes. and his wife's family who are also, whether they're prominent or not, and they are, like this is the whole, like you're not just humiliating yourself and putting yourself on display and your moral failings. You're also putting your wife and your kids and the whole thing like in the public eye for public comment. That's a lot. That takes a, a really, that's a, that's a very significant tell, I feel like, about where he is and how he views all of this. And a lot of people after something like that would have packed up their bags and gone home and been done. Hamilton never really disconnects from politics, particularly at a party level. And he continues his military service. Despite all of this, he's inspector general of the US Army for a couple of years after this. And when George Washington dies in 1799, he is the most senior officer in the US Army. He's a two-star general at the time that Hamilton dies. So he remains sort of really involved 
involved in the running of the military in our early years and really involved in politics, which could have been a boon, except he happens to have this intense hatred for the other major prominent member of his party, a man that both you and I quite like, is John Adams. And so there almost seems to be, if anybody could have come back from this in a real way, it feels like Hamilton could have come back from the Reynolds affair and scandal because he's just so dogged in public service. He's so committed to it. He's so willing to continue being a part of it. But this, you know, his... (laughs) His whole, the atoms of it all is going to just keep Hamilton from just being fully 100% behind his own party at a moment when he probably needed to be. I'm not sure Hamilton could have stayed away from politics. Like Washington, like the whole, the beat about Washington and to some extent Jefferson is that they didn't really need this. Like this is, they want to serve their country and their men of honor and all that, but like they're kind of above it. Hamilton's not. And that's the difference I feel like that Hamilton is, this is, he's very much a political animal. He's like, can't, cannot divorce himself from being involved in this. And had he lived longer, he would have continued to be involved. He was famous. He's extremely involved in a lot of different things. So I feel like he's not, he can't divorce himself from this. He's very much connected, even though he doesn't like John Adams, which makes me sad because I really like John Adams a lot. But shall we talk a little bit about Aaron Burr? Yeah, so on the flip side, basically a completely different animal in terms of background, temperament, ambition. Actually, maybe the one thing they share is they're both nakedly ambitious, is Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr could not be more different in almost every other way from Alexander Hamilton. Aaron Burr is essentially royalty, right? His grandfather is Jonathan Edwards, like the big preacher. He's a big deal. His father is president of Princeton. Well, what is Princeton now? We call the College of New Jersey. Uh, he is, he's, um, views politics as a game. He's good at it. He enjoys playing it. He's not an ideologue. He kind of has flexibility, but he is very much like he has a big personality. He's born and bred almost to be part of the ruling class. Like he was very much of that level. He's in the same level as a James Madison or a John Adams or John Quincy Adams. Like he is very prominent. He's been very well educated. He's extremely well read. And he is very much the opposite of Hamilton in in a lot of critical ways. He's born to this. And he's a politician and a lawyer. He is wants to abolish slavery, although at various points he is an enslaver himself, which is not great. Um, but he's actually has some fairly like progressive positions. He believes in universal suffrage. Which is unique at the time. There's been some interesting writing on Burr sort of cast as a feminist. I don't know how far I would go to to that, particularly some of his personal uh, predilections and enjoyment. But um, he does, I think, you know, as a father of a daughter, as they often say, believes in equal education opportunities for women, working opportunities for women. He will submit several bills (laughs) when he serves in the New York legislature to allow for universal suffrage. So it's interesting because he is not an ideologue. And yet there are a few key positions. Um, And I think, again, with the slavery um, as well, sort of recognizing that while he at various points in his life may engage with this practice, that as a country, right, or as a state at the very least, we're going to have to abolish at some point. He might as well be the one to sort of put it forward. It makes him fascinating. He's a man of some fascinating kind of contradictions there or dualities that are kind of occurring at the same time. And he's brilliant. I think, especially because of the musical, Hamilton and his, you know, the massive amount of writing that Hamilton leaves behind makes clear his genius. But Burr is no slouch intellectually. Uh, And not just because he's been able to acquire a world-class education, but he's exceptionally smart, which will also maybe perhaps be part of what leads to his downfall, a little too smart for your own good, um, trying to play that game of politics. Yes, and he also is more, um, seems to be more of an an, an opportunist. And this perhaps is his, him and Hamilton's biggest disagreement. They have many disagreements involving status, involving class, involving the direction of the United States. But I think their biggest is that Hamilton's a true believer, whereas you get the sense with Burr that he's a little more like, 
you know, slippery. He's a little more of an opportunist. He wants to take advantage. Um, he's hungry for power. And he is extremely talented, too. But it, it seems to Hamilton, I think, that Burr will do whatever needs to be done to get into power. And Hamilton want, has a morality to this that Burr does not seem to share. And I, that feels like that's part of one a big part of their disagreement later on. So he's he actually believed in universal suffrage for women, also for African-Americans. He was opposed to slavery for the most part. Like, Burr is fairly progressive. Ah. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll allow it. We'll allow it. Certainly not stupid. He's not stupid yeah, by, by no means. He is, you know, deeply ambitious. This is a man who, similarly to Hamilton, has no qualms about engaging in party politics, although he is more interested in being strategic and playing, you know, his cards close to his chest when he needs to, but he has no problem with the building up what essentially becomes the Tammany Hall political machine in New York. Um, He has no problem getting his hands dirty into some partisan politics. Uh, I do like to mention when I talk about Aaron Burr, that he was in a duel prior to this, uh, a full participant in a duel in 1799. So this is five years prior to the big duel. He actually dueled with a guy named John Church, which you are, if you are a musical fan, that's Angelica's husband, Angelica Schuyler marries John Church. And John Church accuses Aaron Burr of taking a bribe. And so, of course, the insult cannot stand. The two men are going to duel. And luckily, I guess, for each of them, they each miss their shots. And at that point, Church will acknowledge that he probably shouldn't have made an accusation against Burr without any proof. They sort of shake hands and walk away. But I think it's um, a good little insight into Burr that an accusation of this kind was enough for Burr to say, let Let's, let's duel it out. Let's do this on the field of a duel. Hamilton also more than once gets very close to dueling. This was not uncommon. And we'll talk a little bit about how common dueling was in a moment. But to sort of build up a little bit, um, Hamilton and Burr are sort of on these parallel paths through a good portion of their careers and lives. And it's hard to pinpoint an exact moment where we see a major rift or division. It's more like death by a thousand paper cuts between the two of them. There are a couple key points. 1791, Baron Burr is gonna defeat Hamilton's father-in-law for election in the New York State Legislature. So he's gonna defeat Philip Schuyler. Um, And this is sort of one of the moments to which Hamilton will point to when he points to disagreements between the two of them. Uh, The year of the duel, Hamilton writes specifically to a course of 15 years competition, um, which brings it kind of to that 1791 year. So Hamilton, by the time they're dueling, looks at 15 years of grievances between the two of them. But it's really the election of 1800 where I think we see one of the biggest conflicts between Hamilton and Burr come head to head. So the election of 1800, another thing we're going to do a whole pot on, because <laughs> it's a big one. It's crazy. It's insane. Um, it, there's nothing new in politics under the sun. People are just as nasty back then as they are today, friends. It's really true. Incumbent John Adams is remarkably unpopular, as is John Adams' want. Um, he, <laughs> yeah, the Democrat Republicans are trying to oust him. He's a Federalist. Um, And Adams is lacking support in his own party, which is not great, uh, partly because of Hamilton, because Hamilton has done him zero favors. And don't think that John Adams doesn't notice it. He does. Yeah. Well, and to be fair, Adams has no love for Hamilton, has nothing but awful and somewhat racist things to say about him behind closed doors and in letters. So Hamilton, by 1800, isn't even under the pretense of supporting Adams. He thinks he can whip up enough Federalists who feel similarly that they can mount this opposition, he throws a support behind Charles Pickney. But the truth is, the Federalist Party, if split, cannot defeat the Democratic Republicans who are on the upswing. Anytime you're trying to unseat an incumbent, you have the momentum. And that is what the Democratic Republicans have. Uh, Running against them is both Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson. And um, they both tie in electoral college votes, which is they get 73 each. And that means the election is going to go to the House of Representatives because the Constitution is 
strange and wonderful. Each of the 16 states get would get one vote and nine is needed. So nine's a majority, obviously, when you have 16. Uh, so the states vote on bank as a, as a block. They get one each. Uh, and so in the first 35 ballots, Jefferson cannot get a majority. So this goes on for a long time. And there's just a faction of Democratic Republicans who are not fans of Jefferson, primarily Northern Democratic Republicans. Um, and so there's sort of this thought that, you know, they're deadlocked, essentially, right? Jefferson can't get the majority. Burr can't overtake um, Jefferson. So there's definitely going to be accusations uh, from all sides involved, including from some Federalists, of trying to swing or pressure this to go one way or another. And Burr really refuses to concede. There's no part of Aaron Burr that's going to go for the good of the party. I am going to throw my support behind Jefferson. Burr really wants to be president of the United States. He thinks he'd be better at it than Jefferson would be. And so um, while he plays it sort of mellow outwardly, there's no point 35 ballots in where Burr's going, okay, I'm going to throw it in. He wants it very, very bad, and he thinks he deserves it. Yeah, he's really not interested in a concession of any type. He's And he is well positioned, frankly. Jefferson can't carry the North, which is exactly where Burr is. Uh, and so you've got, and they don't particularly care for each other either, um, and so there's a lot going on here. And um, he, before the 36th ballot, Alexander Hamilton is basically going to throw his support behind Thomas Jefferson. And Hamilton and Jefferson didn't like each other either. I mean, they're separate, I mean, they're different parties, but beyond that, they are very right. different men, very different backgrounds. Um, you know, man. Hamilton in 1800 is sort of a man without a country to an extent, in that. He is so opposed to John Adams remaining president. He writes a pamphlet to 200 leading Federalists saying, don't vote for our incumbent president, which from a party perspective is dumb. And yet when you've got yeah. these two Democratic Republicans duking it out, Hamilton has no love really for either of them. And yet he recognizes that at some point it's going to be one of them. And he, despite everything he feels about Jefferson, will throw his support there. He's going to call Aaron Burr, in his own words, a mischievous enemy to the very principal yes. measures of the Adams administration. And he's going to lobby delegates against Aaron Burr. And so very much you're seeing like, I can't emphasize it enough, Hamilton and Jefferson don't get along at all. They can't stand each other. And so you're seeing Hamilton stuck with this choice of like really literally the lesser of what he considers to be two significant evils. He doesn't like Jefferson, but he really doesn't trust Burr. And so that's where ultimately this can't go on forever where no side is going to get enough unless Hamilton does something. And so finally he's going to push, put his chips in for Thomas Jefferson. Jefferson does win because our electoral process is insane. Was insane, still is insane. Could be, yeah, mm -hmm, good times. Um, but Burr becomes vice president because back then, number one vote getter gets to be president. Number two vote getter does not go play golf. <laughs> the number two vote getter gets to be vice president. One of the greatest what ifs for me of American history is if we had just kept that, that system. If we had just decided, oh you know what, this is the founding fathers were onto something, the framers knew what they were talking about. Let's just keep it this way. And theoretically, you know, all things equal. It's not a bad idea because the idea is that this will keep one party from locking in power, that you will have some balance, that it won't necessarily always be the person who's got the support of the biggest states um, having power of both the presidency and the vice presidency. So there's some good ideas here. But um, imagine you're Thomas Jefferson. Aaron Burr has been a thorn in your side. He's been trying to split your own party against you. He made you go through 36 ballots before you were nominated or, you know, elected president. And now that guy's your vice president. And I feel like the idea is a good one to have like the number two vote getter be in government so that there's a representative, like someone from the minority opinion is represented. But the other problem is that you end up with what we end, what Jefferson does, which is he freezes out his vice president. The office of vice president in the Constitution isn't strong enough, really, to give Burr any real leg to stand on. And so Jefferson does basically just 
shoves him into the background and ices him out. And so Burr's like vice president, but what you know, what good do does anything. it do you? And not only just and not out. only are you vice president with being iced out, but the leader of your party, Jefferson, hates you. Um, you're not engaged in any sort of party movement. And it's very clear that Jefferson isn't going to let this stand for a second term. We're going to get the 12th Amendment. This is going to be what changes this process. And it's clear that there's no way Jefferson is going to let this work out in the re-election in 1804 that he's going to be saddled with Burr again. So Aaron Burr as VP already knows he's going to be a one-term VP, that there, there is no way this is going to happen a second time. And I think it's sort of fascinating and it's a great insight into his mind that as we get to 1804, Burr's like, yeah, I'm vice president, but I guess I'll run for governor of New York because I've got no future. <laughs> in this vice presidency. So I might as well just try to go back to New York and be governor, which is not a bad maneuver uh, necessarily. Their election for governor was April of 1804. He's going to run and he loses to a man named Morgan Lewis. And you can probably guess who was out there actively huh. campaigning against Aaron Burr. Huh, who? Well, you'll be shocked to find out. It's Alexander Hamilton. So here we are four years later, and here's the same guy going around, whipping up votes against Burr, telling voters that Burr would be dangerous for New York. And so Aaron Burr is a lame duck vice president, essentially. He loses this governor's race. And then shortly after, a letter appears in the Albany Register. Dun, dun, dun. And you're all like, ooh, the Albany Register. Um, so Albany, the for the uninitiated state capital of New York, the Albany Register is a big political newspaper covering a lot of the political news of the day. And there is a letter from a man named Charles Cooper that is written to Philip Schuyler. Hamilton's father-in-law. And this letter ends up getting published right around, right after the governor election. The letter references a dinner party where Alexander Hamilton was in attendance. And at this dinner party, it is alleged that he says that Burr is a, quote, dangerous man and not to be trusted, unquote. And there is then a later reference to an unnamed, but even, quote, more despicable, end quote, statement made about Burr by Hamilton. So it's basically this letter is Hamilton says this guy is not to be trusted. And Hamilton actually said something worse, but I can't even put it in this letter because what if someone actually read it? Uh-oh. This sounds bad. <laughs> and you know, you're Aaron Burr. Things are not going well for you in 1804. And you have to read that. I mean, it'd be like picking up the Washington Post today and being like, Oh, someone said a not nice thing about me. Oh, and they probably said other nice things about me that are too bad to print. You know, Burr's got to read about it in the paper. So he's really unhappy. And he writes a letter directly to Alexander Hamilton. It is delivered by a man named William Van Ness, who will come up again soon. And this letter is essentially, I need you to confirm or deny what was in the Albany Register. Did you did you say these things? And two days later, Hamilton replies back with his version of, I can neither confirm nor deny these accusations. <laughs> um, and he basically just outlines a litany of complaints and disagreements and essentially says, I can't apologize for what I've been accused of saying or not saying because you're not telling me exactly what I've said. And he admits in this letter that he knows that by doing this, he is bringing them to an impasse potentially. He says he will abide by the consequences of not yielding in this. Aaron Burr wants an apology, which is not unreasonable necessarily. He wants an apology. Hamilton refuses to apologize for something that is a nonspecific accusation of something he may or may not said. And so Burr writes him this, quote, you have invited the course I'm about to pursue, and now your silence impose it upon me, end quote. So that is that is it. It is a series of a couple letters. 
And Hamilton realizes that this is real. He is going to start preparing for this duel. He's going to put together basically a financial accounting for his wife, um, basically a plan, including all of his debts and where his money has come in. He writes a farewell letter to her. He is going to, you know, inform a couple of other people of his intention to duel. And it does seem from what he leaves behind, what he writes in advance, that he is hesitant about this. He will write about his moral and religious objections to this practice. Um, he writes about a fear of leaving behind his wife and children. And he is aware that no matter how this goes, even if he survives, this could potentially ruin his reputation. It could potentially impact any future political ambitions, which then raises the question of why. You know you have so much to lose. Why? It's hard, too, because this is like Hamilton's motives at this moment are really obscure. Like, why not just apologize? You know, why not just write him an apology and then you don't have to meet on a dueling field and it's easier. So it's not it's not a specific complaint that Burr has. He says that he slandered him but can't give specifics. It's all very strange. And and Burr, and Hamilton's motivation for not apologizing and not just ending this has always seemed to me really odd. The the real the reason though, why does it why does he go through with it is his reputation. Like chickening out or backing down is not done. It's not gentlemanly. It's not um, it would ruin what is left of his already iffy reputation. Uh, and so he can't back down and he can't sully his name and he can't like um, concede that Burr is in any way correct. Like that's that's not a that's not a thing that he can do. And so basically he's going to go through with this because it's what honor demands of him. But the specifics of it are, always so strange. Burr has nonspecific charges and Hamilton refuses to apologize and then they go through this duel. And I feel like part of the problem here is people get hung up on the specific reason that they duel. It's clear to me that they just don't like each other. Like, apart from the politics, which is extreme, they don't get along and they never have. And sometimes people just rub you the wrong way. And for somebody of both of their hot-headed temperament, you can kind of see this simmers and festers and, you know, someone drives you insane for a long enough period of time and you're of this disposition, you're going to, something's going to happen. And so that's kind of where they end up. Yeah. And I think this segues into just touching on dueling in America for a moment, because it, it is very hard in 21st century mentality you know, the quippy way is like men will literally duel rather than go to therapy, right? Like they'll literally just stand in a field and shoot each other. It sounds a little nuts, but it is what is done, especially for men of a certain class. You know, it is not respectable to get into a fist fight with somebody. Gentlemen will stand out in a field with dueling pistols. And this is something that is ingrained into American society before we are America. We bring it over from the British. We use British dueling rules and codes well into the 19th century when we finally Americanized them. The first recorded duel on this continent in what is now the United States is 1621, which is Plymouth. So we have had it as part of society. When I say part of society, this is primarily for white men of a certain background, but it was just considered part of the code of honor. It is what you did. Um, and it was considered the better option rather than get into some sort of low class brawl. This was the respectable way. And they really are not ever, you know, these are not crimes of passion. This is not a fit of rage. They're methodical. They're formulized. There is a code to which you are to follow. There's a series of steps. The idea is not typically or necessarily to murder someone. The idea is if we follow these steps, there are several points along the way that either one of us could back down and keep our honor. And if we even do make it onto the field, there's still a lot of opportunities to throw your shot up, to shoot askew. There are still ways to do this. I mean, if you really want to kill someone, there's easier ways than dueling. However, the, the natural consequence of two men standing within a few feet of each other firing off pistols is that people died or people were shot and died from infection. <laughs> and uh, this is something that um, even by the early 
1800s in the U.S. is being outlawed in most places because it still often <laughs> results in death. Yes. Dueling is not new. It's not new to the U.S. I mean, it's been going on in Europe for centuries. Like, it's not a, like, men so- solve somehow their, you know, manly disputes via violence. And it's, that's kind of, it's very formalized. And that's, I think, part of what throws people today about this is that it's a, there's a code called the Code Duello. Like it's, we've written down these rules essentially. And this is illegal. It's illegal in all the states at this point, but it's not really illegal. I mean, it is illegal, but you know, it's one of those things. It's just, it's a part of life among gentlemen. It is not really prosecuted almost ever. And normally the idea is you show up and the idea that you're willing to show up satisfies the honor of the other person right and so you don't really need to like go through you're going through emotion but basically that you are willing to put your life on the line for this insult is really the thing Uh, however sometimes it does result in death (laughs) yeah I mean spoilers I guess um I will just also say of our prominent early Americans, there was one who openly condemned dueling and it was George Washington. So you have to wonder if Washington was alive in 1804, would Hamilton have had the temerity to openly duel the sitting vice presidents with George Washington alive and well? And I, something this is also one of those things like we talk about this i we mentioned this briefly on um when we talked about charles sumner like violence has never been far from the political process this has also always been very you know there was a in dc was dueling was illegal but there was dueling grounds like right over the border in maryland like this is not it's not common it doesn't happen every week or whatever but this is not an uncommon thing this is not rare this happens um and there's a whole code surrounding it um and this is the sitting vice president of the united states like actually the vice president like that's wild he's he is the duel takes place on July 11th, 1804. Burr has lost the governor's race. He's not, he knows there's no chance he's going to be vice president come November, but he is there. Mm-hmm. Yep. yep. Doing the role, um, which is just crazy to me. They decide to duel in Weehawken, New Jersey, despite what the musical says. <laughs> everything was not legal in New Jersey. Dueling was illegal, technically, yep. in New York and New Jersey, but the penalties were much less harsh in Jersey. The fines were minimal. They almost never prosecuted it. Um, It was also a lot easier to find a sort of obscure-ish place to do it. You obviously weren't going to do this uh, in the heart of New York where you might be seen by somebody. Um, It was just a lot easier, but it was not everything, you know, that's, I love that little bit, but it was technically legal to do this in New Jersey. And you also get the sense that there's fewer eyes exactly. on you in New Jersey. Fewer eyes. It's still, I mean, Weehawken, especially in 1804, is primarily uh, forested. So it is not like you're, you're, you know, you know what you're doing while part of this sort of like yes. man's code or whatever is really not technically above the board legally. Um, indeed, the place where Burr and Hamilton duel is the exact same spot just three years earlier that uh, Hamilton's son, Philip, was shot in a duel um, at the age of 19 that kills him. He will survive a few hours. Um, so there's that element psychologically that is so interesting, so sad, so tragic. It and is it, so wild to me it that is he insane. would do this. Yeah. Like three years after his own son that you're going to do this to your family again. I just, it's so wild to me that this did not stop him. In fact, they do it on the same, literally the same ground. But then it also, it raises the question of what's going through his mind? What are you thinking of? Um, indeed, we're fairly certain the pistols he used were the same pistols that his son would have used. So here they are. You know, Hamilton is uh, 47, 48. His date of birth is is not 100% clear, but he's in his late 40s. He's pushing 50 at this point. Aaron Burr's around. So is Burr. Yeah, uh, Burr's around the same age. These are respected, grown adult men, both of whom have children who have major political credentials, major, major careers, and they're going to face off just as dawn breaks. Aaron Burr chooses William Van Ness as his second, the same man who delivered the letter to Hamilton. Hamilton chooses Nathaniel Pendleton as his. These are both also 
exceptionally well-respected men in New York. They are both lawyers. They will both go on to serve as federal judges. So again, understanding that this is not like I'm just going to grab some guy to be here with me. This is, I need someone I respect. I know that I have family ties with. Um, and, you know, these were important guys who decided this was a good way to solve a problem. Um, I, I, I described it in my notes as middle-aged, sober-minded men who decided it was a good idea to stand in a field and shoot at each other. Right, like, this that's what's so interesting to me. These are middle-aged people. Like, come on, like, these are eminent political minds. They've decided this. This isn't a heat of the moment. This is very calculated and thought out. In fact, they arrange in advance to arrive there on separate boats so that they're not together, but they're like, and there's less chance that they'll be caught. Like this is a real, this is well thought out from some of the top political minds in the country. And it just is so interesting to me that like, it, it just, it says something interesting about both of them that this is so that they rather would duel it out than go to therapy. Like it really is kind of true. Um, they will bring not just their seconds, but Hamilton will bring Dr. David Hosick, who is his family doctor. You typically did bring a doctor with you um, because yes. most of the time you are not killed instantly. Most of the time too, people are nicked or grazed or if you can get a bullet out or you wanna deal with it immediately. So you bring a doctor because you're gonna need one. They will use Hamilton's dueling pistols. They are 56 caliber and they are large. They're a larger barrel than what was standard at the time. And uh, it had a hair trigger on it, which required a much reduced amount of weight on the trigger to fire. It is unknown and unclear to us today whether that kind of hair trigger was activated or not. You can tell here I am talking about guns, a thing I know nothing about. So it's still unclear to us if that was actually engaged on the weapon. But these are some pretty top of the line guns and they're meant they're meant to do some damage 56 caliber is big like it's no huge. wonder no wonder it killed him like about a big hole in you despite what pop culture and lin-manuel miranda would have us believe we actually don't really know what goes down so spoiler alert one of the two of them isn't going to survive and the one who does has a very vested interest in pushing a specific narrative so him and his second Burr and his second will have one specific idea of what goes on. And Hamilton's second will have a very different version of what goes on. It seems, I have read a bunch of things, and it seems to me that Hamilton, and this makes some logical sense to me, Hamilton would have banked on the idea that Burr would not shoot him. Because if Burr does shoot him, he'd be branded as a murderer, and this would end his political career. And Burr is, above all else, exceedingly ambitious and so hamilton seems to have bet that burr won't actually fire at him and somehow <laughs> seems to have been wrong <laughs> that is a miscalculation if that was indeed what hamilton is yes. betting on he bets wrong we know that two shots were fired that is what we know who shot first is a mystery that we will never know the answer to, despite what the witnesses who tell varying accounts will say. And even those who witnessed it would vary what they said through their lifetime. Um, we know there are two shots. We know they are uh, within seconds of each other. Hamilton wrote a lot more prior to this event than Burr did. Almost everything Burr writes or says about this happens after the act. And so it's a lot easier to try to maybe understand Hamilton's psychology than Burr's. But there are plenty of indications that historians feel that Hamilton was likely going to throw his shot, either shoot wide or shoot up, um, but that because he did not think Burr was going to fire directly at him, he was not interested in taking a man's life. You know, he was not interested in this. And so we'll never know for sure. What we do know is that Hamilton's shot goes wide. Whether he was aiming up or not is really up for debate, but whatever shot went towards Burr goes far wide. Burr isn't even grazed, nothing comes close to him. The bullet that hit that leaves Burr's gun and hits Hamilton goes square into his abdomen on the right side. So um, it hits pretty squarely. Hamilton did write in a letter, right, that he was going to reserve and throw away his first fire. Nathaniel Pendleton says that Hamilton verbally confirms this before the duel, but who can say? Hamilton pretty much drops immediately. Uh, Dr. Hosack is 
a good doctor. It's 1804. Nothing you're going to be able to do about this. He immediately says it's fatal uh, and he gets Hamilton out of there. They're going to row him back across the Hudson over to New York. They're going to go to the home of a man named William Bayard, who was a very close friend to the Hamiltons and a very well-respected banker. And basically, this is Greenwich Village. If you know Greenwich Village today, uh, this is where Bayard's home is, and this is where Hamilton parishes. They don't even bother to try to get him all the way uptown, back up to his home. They know he has limited time, and the less they move him, the more they can prolong it long enough for his wife and uh, his sister-in-law to make it down with him. For Burr, though, this is this is not the end. For Hamilton, in many ways, it martyrs him, right? It sort of elevates his status. It's this tragedy, uh, particularly in New York, where New York is not as big as New York today. These families are so well connected and intertwined. Everybody knew him. Everybody had worked with him. Touching on that, touching on the incredible work that his wife does to secure his legacy, she is going to make sure that people do not forget how her husband dies. She's going to make sure that people do not forget that her husband mm-hmm. is a genius. Um, she will work in many areas of her own interest, but also in constant service of securing Hamilton's place she in She reminds... And not just... I'm sorry, that. she reminds me very much of Libby Custer, George Armstrong Custer's wife. Very dedicated. This is the cause. This is her whole life after this, is burnishing his reputation. This becomes a big deal. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, it's... Um, it is her her cause, her reason, her reason to continue on and why she lives, I think, so much longer as she has this banner to kind of carry. And it is not just Eliza. Hamilton has a number of well-connected friends who will do the same. Um, he luckily has enough close, wealthy friends who will step in and basically pay off his many debts. He leaves a lot of debt behind. And he will have enough friends sort of step in so that the Schuyler, surviving Schuyler family is well cared for in terms of home and land and property. So in some ways, a happy ending for Hamilton, but he gets the better end of the deal maybe for, for a long time, right? Um, the one nice thing I think about the musical Hamilton, one of the many nice things, is at least it gives us some context and shade to Burr. But prior to that, he was just... That becomes it. It's the one line. He's the guy who shot and killed Alexander Hamilton. Yes. Burr is charged with murder, but never faces trial. Charged in both New York, where it did not take place, but where Hamilton died. And in New Jersey, where the duel did take place, but Hamilton didn't die there. So you get both. And he is never faces trial. He'll flee to South Carolina initially where his daughter lives, but returns to Philadelphia and then D.C. to fin- finish out the remainder of his very short VP term. But like, that's a little bonkers when you think about it. When he kind of realizes that charges are getting dropped or no one's going to actually prosecute him, he's like, I guess I'll go back to the Senate because as vice president, I am in charge of the Senate. And I guess I'll just do that for a few more weeks. Sure, why not? What a what a mentality. So, he's interesting. He it post duel he plays his most important role as vice president. So after the duels when he does the like heavy lifting, um, he is going to conduct the impeachment trial of Supreme Court Justice Samuel Chase. Another podcast episode to come. We oh, have got yeah. to got to dig into this. Mm-hmm. So this is really kind of a test for our young country. We had not had any impeachment trials up to this point. He's tasked with overseeing this in the Senate. And he was said, despite many people, you know, he was not on anyone's top 10 list in 1804, having killed Hamilton, having been on the outs with this party. And yet he was said by foes and friends to have conducted that impeachment trial, quote, with the dignity and impartiality of an angel, but the rigor of a devil, end quote. So that was something where he was under a great deal of scrutiny and yet sort of managed to walk this fine line of having a fair trial, despite the fact that he's got Jefferson and members of his party really kind of trying to push him to be as partisan as possible with this. Yeah. He kind of avoids New York and New Jersey (laughs) until the charges are dropped. Okay, fair enough. Um, and it seems that he's unmoved by Hamilton's death. He doesn't seem to be too sorry about it. Sorry, not sorry. And then... Yeah. Yeah, not sorry. And then he doesn't really fade into history. 
He kind of does, but he kind of, he, you'd think he would completely be erased. Uh, but he faces his own treason charge in 1807. Uh, Jefferson sort of puts his thumb on the scale a little bit there um, <laughs> against Burr. Um, but it, Burr will be acquitted on every charge. Uh, and the shadow, I think it's safe to say, and we can talk about more about Burr's later life at an, a different point, but this, it's safe to say that the shadow of this never leaves him. This follows him. He becomes a political pariah. This will shadow the rest of his life. Uh, and he dies in obscurity. Gets married again very briefly. Kind of goes out west for a bit. And then dies really penniless and obscure. Yeah, it is It's sort of maybe an, another tragedy to this. Which is that whatever happens on that dueling ground. However he feels about it. It is going to be the end of any real career for him. Not just political. But really any career. This is a man who easily could have gone back and been president of a college. Could have been a professor. Uh, could have continued private law. And yet he just struggles. Nobody trusts him. He's got this hanging over him. He has to deal with these treason charges from Jefferson. That even today it is very possible that he may have engaged in some slightly unethical behavior but in no way did he commit treason against his country and so he's got to deal with these sort of trumped up charges from one of his political allies um he dies deeply in debt in obscurity this boarding house in staten island it really is a sad end for a man who had like the man that he kills had been so significant in the founding of our country, had played such a big role in the early years of America, who is, we should know, you know, I mean, he's one of our, our third vice president. You know, this is not a no one. And it's sort of a shame that this is where, where his legacy lays for so long. And he is, as it turns out, the first, but not the last sitting vice president to shoot a man while vice president. Do you know who the other one is, Becca? Why do I feel like I... Oh, I do. Uh, Dick Cheney. Correct. <laughs> I was like, I definitely know. <laughs> I had to think if he was sitting vice president when that happened. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Very much. Um, yes. That is that is old, old Dick Cheney. Good times. So that is the Hamilton Bird duel. I think that... You know, the, so much of this is covered in the musical. And I should note the musical's primary source material, which is Ron Chernow's um, biography on Alexander Hamilton as well. And if you want a really good thigh man of history version of Hamilton's life, you can definitely get it in the Chernow book. But there is a lot of really good information in the book uh, that gets into some of the complexities here. In Washington, D.C., there are a few places where if you are a... A Hamilton Burr fan, you can definitely get a little a little bit of that. We have a statue to Alexander Hamilton. In front of the Treasury. It is outside. Yeah, it is outside the Department of the Treasury building. It is on the south front side of the Treasury building, which is unfortunately essentially behind the Secret Service. It's a little bummer security checkpoint for the White House. So it is not always easy to get a really good picture up close with the Hamilton statue, so a little word of warning. And you can- Free ham. Yeah. And you can indeed find a bust of Aaron Burr, the same place you can find a bust of pretty much all of our vice presidents. And that is in the United States Senate chamber. Correct. Yes. So he's actually, if I will put a link in the show notes to the uh, Burr bust. I kind of love it. It's very jaunty. He's got like yeah. a really sharp lapel. So he's easy to, if you're like in the chamber, he's kind of easy to pick out because it's got a little bit of a distinctive look to it. So yeah. there is a bust to Burr, despite sort of what happens while he's VP. Right. Yeah, it's really, they're both well represented or fairly well represented in D.C. And of course, you can visit Hamilton's grave. He's buried at church, uh, not in D.C., but he's buried at Trinity Church, uh, which still is there in, in New York City, right down in Wall Street. And uh, yeah, that's there. They've got a lot going on. So that's Hamilton and Burr. Uh, I love it. How about that? It's like... And we didn't even break into song. Didn't even break into song. Although I highly recommend if you have not watched or listened to it recently, it really does hold up. It's just fun. I am, for the record, wearing my Hamilton shirt from when I saw Hamilton. She is. Can confirm. I've got my, I've got my Hamilton shirt on today. But definitely worth worth re rechecking out if it's been a few years for you and you want to get back into it. I highly recommend so yes, this is this was fun. Um, dueling, we could do we could do just podcasts on dueling because there's so many of them, um, oh and almost God. never involving women. Shocking. I know, isn't that shocking? <laughs> mm. 
about that. So thank you as always to our wonderful patrons. Thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you for those of you who have come out on tours this summer. We love meeting you on tour. Um, if you're a podcast listener and you take a tour with us, let us know because it's just always really fun to meet with you. You can always reach out to us, tourguidetellall at gmail.com. I know what our email address is. Uh, and you can find us on the socials, whatever social media platform you might be on. We try to be there and that ever elusive world of social media. But we appreciate you and we will see you next time. Yes. Bye. Thanks, everybody.